This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. Nicole Webb is a familiar face to many of us after spending years as a journalist and newsreader on Sky News. But after living the dream for 10 years, Nicole gave up her coveted TV job and moved to Hong Kong with her new hotel husband and a precious baby bump. Life in Hong Kong proved to be good. She had her little one to care for, her blog, Mint Mocker Musings to write, a group of supportive girlfriends and her freelance media work. So why would she give up her lovely life in the fragrant Harbour City to move to a landlocked city in mainland China? Nicole is now back in Australia and has reflected on her Chinese adventure in a funny and light-hearted new book called China Blonde. Welcome, Nicole. It's great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, Nicole, people might think that you know if you've already adapted to a completely new life in Hong Kong, then moving again into the heart of China might not be too difficult. Um, how different was your life in Xi'an to what you were used to in Hong Kong? Um, yeah, you would think we would be have had enough adventure moving to Hong Kong and uh, finding our feet there, but no, it wasn't. We had to just go one step further. Um, as you said, my husband is in hotels and they like you to progress with your career and that means obviously moving around a lot. And we'd been in Hong Kong for four years and we had managed to stay firmly there and enjoy it, as you said. And it just became increasingly obvious that we had to move so James could get that general manager role, so number one. And so many places were coming up all over the globe. You know, I'd be dreaming of going to, you know, um, Bali and wearing bikinis all day or I'd be in Goa eating curry or Thailand getting massages, but they sort of came and went and China just kept coming up on the radar. And I kind of craved a bit more of an adventure as well by this point, um, call me crazy. And uh, then Xi'an came up maybe six months later and I m- remember Googling it and it looked quite attractive as far as Chinese cities go, very quintessential China with all the red lanterns strung up everywhere and temples and pagodas and I just said to James, I think we've got to do it. So, I mean, Xi'an, for those who have never heard of this particular city, can you tell us just a little bit about some of its distinctive features? Sure. So Xi'an, okay, there are about 650 and counting cities in China, which is mad, right? Um, Four of them are known as those first tier cities. So you're Shanghai, Beijing, Guangzhou and Shenzhen. The rest are second tier, third tier. So Xi'an was a second tier then. Still, it had nine million people. So Xi'an um, was in central China, sort of heading up to the north. It's landlocked, as you said earlier, kind of not too far from the desert. Um, So very dry and dusty in the summer. Probably the key tourist attractions you would have heard of are those terracotta warriors which were unearthed um, after thousands of years underground so lots of tourists go to see those and it was also the capital I think 10 of 10 dynasties in the past so it used to be China's capital and it was the start of the Silk Road so there's a big Muslim quarter there so those are kind of the things that it's known for that tourists may perhaps go there and, and see it but it is kind of like stepping back in time, uh, that said. <laughs> so what was the hardest thing for you to adapt to in your new city? Well, I mean, having lived in Hong Kong, you know, you would think that I was very familiar with Asia by this point after four years. I'd been to China, I'd been to Shanghai, 
But Xi'an was just another level, I think. Um, a lot of people that live there have never been out of Xi'an. They've never even been to Hong Kong. Um, so there's a very different mentality um, because of China's rapid urbanization. A lot of them are, are farmers have, that have moved into the city. So it was just like going back in time, you know, everyone's sort of smoking like it's the 70s inside and out. Um, people are urinating babies on the street with their little split crotch nappies. People are spitting better out than in on the footpaths. So the hygiene, the crowds were just insane. And I was kind of used to that in Hong Kong, I guess. But the big difference was English was so much um, less spoken um, than it had been in Hong Kong. Uh, you know, where in Hong Kong you had the Cantonese or the characters, you would have English often underneath. Um, but in in Xi'an, nothing. You know, it was just all um, Chinese characters. So that was a little bit overwhelming. We lived in the hotel, of course, which was very lucky and privileged. Um, but you would step outside of that hotel. And obviously, I had Ava, who was three at the time, and we would just just be swarmed. It was like being celebrities, <laughs> but in China, you know, because many people there had never seen a white person in the flesh. Maybe they'd seen, you know, on the uh, movies in America or whatever, but that was it. So they were really fascinated. And that was really quite overwhelming at first because, you know, I didn't know whether that was harmless when an, an old man picks up Ava and hoists him above his shoulders and everyone's crowding around clapping and you're, you're thinking, what are they doing? You know, I need to get her down and I can't even speak Chinese at that point. So it was a bit scary until we found our feet, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, I found that in the quite overwhelming in the book um, how much attention Ava gets everywhere she goes. Um, but, of course, one of the biggest struggles initially was not having the language and also not knowing anyone. So how did you start to break down those two big barriers to settling into life in Xi'an? Okay, well, yeah, I had um, been taking a few Mandarin lessons in Hong Kong, um, but as soon as I got there, I realised I needed immersion immediately, you know, because everything was just such an effort. I couldn't eat, I couldn't do anything. And if I got lost or I was out and about, you know, I would be hopeless. So uh, there was one other West was working in the hotel and I, his Chinese was amazing. I said, whoever you've got, I need her. And her name was Vera Wang. So I was like, okay, sounds good. The fashion <laughs> designer? Yeah, suits me perfectly. So Vera came along to the hotel and I started having lessons once a week to try and learn it as quickly as I could. But obviously Chinese is just a really, really difficult language to master and I don't think I ever could. Um, but, you know, I, I got to the point where I could have a basic conversation in the end and if I was out and about and my phone battery died or something it wasn't terrible it wasn't the end of the world so mm. um, one of the things I most enjoyed about the book was that you were having these adventures with your small person as you as you call her often in the book um, in tow um, but being a mum also makes you vulnerable at times you know like as you said when people were grabbing Ava or you know, obviously there's that fear of, of losing her in, in a big crowd. So how did having Ava there sort of shape the expat experience for you? Yeah, I guess it did shape it 
in a way that is probably different. For example, if you go to Hong Kong, I remember being pregnant when we arrived in Hong Kong. So I didn't have that typical expat experience where you are out in Lang Kwai Fong, you know, till all hours of the night sort of thing. And, um, you know, in Hong Kong, everyone has a helper. And I was a bit reluctant to do that because most of the time they have to live with you in your tiny, tiny apartment. Um, and I also didn't want to become reliant on having a helper and think if we ever come back to Australia, I'm not going to know what to do. I'm not going to know how to do the washing or the ironing or look after my own child. You know, I didn't want to do that. So in Hong Kong, we ended up just getting a part-time helper who would come occasionally when I had to work. And that was amazing. Um, in Xi'an, they have things, uh, they have IEs, which is similar um, but not quite the same. Um, and we didn't have one because we were in the hotel. Of course, we had um, housekeeping, which was a huge honour and privilege. Um, but, you know, again, Ava was very spoiled because she was the little white kid that, that they just adored her. And, you know, she would say to Nina, who worked at the hotel, you know, can we go and get cupcakes from the restaurant, you know, and, and you know, click her fingers and off she went and come back with piles of cupcakes. And, you know, or I remember her saying we could call for room service. And um, I remember her telling um, Jane's parents when they arrived, showing them the seat where we ordered dinner because it was next to the, the phone. And I'm like, oh, my God, you know, so you really have to be careful that she's not being brought up as this spoiled expat child. So that's always on your mind. And then the flip side of that is that, you know, Chinese kids have a different upbringing as well. I mean, they're often um, brought up by the grandparents and so they've got that traditional set of rules. Um, I guess you have to try and show her what's right and wrong and when everybody's just crossing the road, you know, cars keep coming, the green man means nothing <laughs> if you want to cross the road. You've just got to kind of weave in and out between the cars and I thought, you know, what happens when we get back to Australia and, and she just ignores the green man and keeps going. So, you know, just crossing the road and, and little things like that, you've got to think of and, you know, that it's not okay just to, to spit on the pavement and, you know, do that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I think that's quite confronting is the different value placed on privacy. So that just doesn't seem to be a high priority in China. There are some funny stories in the book about people just walking into your house um, or, or having lunch on your balcony. Um, but the most confronting part was the visa medical check that you had to do. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah. I think because, and it took me a while to work this out, but it is just because, I mean, 1.4 billion people are living in this country. So there is no such thing as privacy, even in their homes. You know, there are several generations under one roof. So for them, you know, it's, it's not really something they even think about. Like you say, people walking into our house when we first got there, that was not a big deal until I had to say to James, you know, can you just let them know that when I've got the do not disturb button, that means they can't just walk in, <laughs> you know. And as same with the medical visas, you know, you go there and I remember, you know, there's a big sign that says aliens here if you didn't like an alien and you know it's all these people wanting to get their visa to stay in China and you know you they say let's do a blood test and it's not in a doctor's little office in private there's crowds of people lined up behind you your arms shoved 
like if you're in a bank, you know, with the teller shoved under this glass, a bit of tubing tied round, and then they siphon out the blood and off you go. And then you're up to another room and, you know, they're sticking electrodes all over you and whipping your tops up and the door's wide open, people are walking in, you know, then you're, you're quickly taken into another one for a blood pressure machine, which is just a long sleeve that you put your arm in and <laughs> It was just crazy. We were just being poked and prodded left, right and centre in front of everyone. And in the end, we just got the giggles because you have to laugh or you'll cry. Yeah. Look, it was certainly a funny and confronting, I guess, scene in the book. The other scene that um, I'll never forget was Ikea. So while you're there, some familiar Western brands start making inroads into China. Um, But the experience of Ikea in China is a little different uh, to what it's like here. Can you explain that? I remember we were thinking, wow, Ikea, let's just go and see, you know, what, what it's like there because it's just a touch of westernisation and when you, you you sort of start missing it, you know, you just crave anything that's got that slight western, um, you know, touch to it. So we went we thought, I wonder if, you know, um, Chinese people are even going to want to come to Ikea. Um, well, yes, they do. <laughs> For them, it turned out it's like a big day out. Um, we went in and... There were just people everywhere and they were just using the furniture like they were at home, I guess. I think I wrote in the book, we walk past and there's a couple of girls just having a picnic. They've obviously brought their own lunch. They're just on one of the tables, the tags hanging off it, just talking amongst themselves like it's the most normal thing in the world. You know, you go around the corner and everyone's lying on the beds and they're having naps or they're, you know, the husband's sort of patting his girlfriend's head or they've got a pillow, you know, snuggled up to a pillow. And they look at us, obviously, the three Waiguaren or the white people, like, why are you just walking through? Are you going to sit down with us? You know, all the old men are sitting in the cosy chairs, you know, enjoying the air conditioning. I guess for them, it's better than being stuck in their tiny little flats all day. And there's all this great furniture and toys to play with. And they were just playing house. (laughs) Yeah, wow. Um, Well, the other experience that was quite interesting was your first Christmas. And obviously, you're really excited to have some family visiting at Christmas, but it didn't exactly go all to plan, did it? (laughs) Oh, gosh, no. I mean, and this is really only a couple of months into being in Xi'an and I was still quite, I think I was just speechless for a while, you know, just wondering if I was going to survive. And mum and dad had kept saying, you know, it can't be that bad and, you know, you survived Hong Kong and I'm like, I couldn't explain how different it was. Um, Anyway, they came up for Christmas and I remember going to get them that morning and mum's eyes were just wide, just looking out the window at, you know, these bikes rattling by with three or four people on them, things piled high. And I think it was quite polluted as well, um, which it really sets in over winter. And it was winter, obviously, and had been snowing and Anyway, they came up and also a group of friends from Hong Kong. And, of course, um, Ava got sick. Um, (laughs) She was the first to go down. We went out to the Terracotta Warriors on the happy bus, supposedly, and on the way back, yep, she was um, vomiting everywhere. And then everyone just went down, you know, like a deck of cards. 
cards just one by one. All of us were out for the count. Um, but Ava was especially bad and it was really quite scary because obviously the whole medical system is very different. And there was one Chinese doctor that we managed to find in this city of nine million that could speak a tiny bit of English. Um, so I remember urging James. He was the only one that didn't get sick. I don't know how. Anyway, I said, you're going to have to take Ava because she's sort of lifeless and it's so not like her. So he took her to this doctor friend who I'd seen a couple of times and it was always a game of charades. And I remember James was just came back gobsmacked because he'd said she needs to do a, um, a poo sample. And James was like, well, okay, um, fair enough, but I'm not sure if there's anything, you know, to come out. But where would you where would you like that done? You know, looking around the room to see. And he's like, oh, just here on, on the carpet. <laughs> James was like, what? Well, on what? And he gets behind his desk and he pulls out a piece of A4 paper, folds it in half, no less, and then plonks that on the floor. And there you go. And I think James actually tried to get Ava to do it. He was just so, you know, in those situations, you're often just gobsmacked and you, you just kind of go along with it in the moment. <laughs> so, you know, times you can laugh about that now, but at the time it was just like, oh, my gosh, what's happening here? <laughs> Yeah, wow. So many funny stories like that in the book, which, yeah, at the time, as you say, wouldn't have been funny. Um, but looking back now, you know, you have a laugh about it. You have it. to laugh. You do. You have yeah. to keep your sense of humour in those situations. And I think that's what keeps you going. And, you know, otherwise you'd, you'd be out of there. Yeah. And you're thinking this will make a great blog post. Yeah, that's what I would do. I was always, you know, the journalist thinking, okay, well, it's crazy, but we'll do a blog post on that. <laughs> Yeah. Of course, the thing that you, you can't talk about as much is is politics. It's It seems to be a little bit of a taboo topic um, and you have to tread very carefully when you are talking to people about their government um, and the way that the government intrudes into all sorts of areas of life, even, you know, what hours you can have your heater on and things like that. How do Chinese people feel about their government and were they willing to talk with you about it? It's really interesting because they actually don't talk about politics the way we do in the West. You know, we're all sitting around the table and the first thing that comes up at the moment is Trump or what's happening in Victoria or what Scott Morrison's doing. They do not talk about politics in daily life. Maybe the new, newer generations are starting to, but the average person that I talk to, and I interviewed a lot of people for the book, it's not something that is just brought up in their conversations. Um, but when I interviewed them, of course, they would trot out the line that they love the government and the government's great. I've never seen a country so patriotic and, you know, a, a prime minister or president so revered by its people. I remember President Xi came to Xi'an and his car must have come past the Western Hotel and the crowds were just out there waving the flags and it was so exciting, you know. No one would dare say, you know, anything bad about him. So it's quite interesting. And, you know, I asked a lot of them about the censorship um, and they would just say, what censorship? You know, whereas for us, clearly there's censorship everywhere. Um, the TV would often turn to black when something came on they didn't want you to see. Obviously, we can't get on Facebook and Twitter or even my own blog without using a VPN. Um, but for them, they're like, you know, we can see everything we need to see. We can read the news. And even though it's often watered down China style, 
Uh, that's okay for them because for most of them, it's been survival of the fittest for so long. You know, you forget that 40, 50 years ago, you know, it was a country in poverty and it still is largely today. And, you know, they would greet people with chilamar, which is have you eaten? So, you know, it's only really in the last 30 or 40 years that things have really progressed. And for them, they are just so thankful, I think, to have a roof over their head, to be able to go to university, um, to have a country that's progressing, that it, it's really not about the small things. Like, well, for them, they are small things, you know. Mm, interesting. Mm. So what do you understand about Chinese culture now that you didn't before? Mm, wow. I guess I understand that the people are really steeped in tradition. It plays such a big role in who they are today. Um, I, I guess that was something I really wanted to delve into and find out about because they do get a bit of a bad rap in the West because, you know, they're pushing and they don't line up and, and they have different habits to us. But like I said, you know, a lot of them have largely come from the countryside you know, and it is very basic and primitive there. And they've suddenly all been pushed into these cities, which are just developing night. You know, there'll be a restaurant there one day, it's gone the next. There's a massive shopping centre there. You know, the shopping centre that was opposite our hotel has been wiped out, I've heard, and completely replaced. And that is just happening all the time. You know, the, the elderly generations, for them, I imagine, it must be really tough. They've never even had traffic lights and suddenly that's why they really can't cross the road or, you know, the way they do things and the wet markets and all of that. So I think there's got to be a level of understanding about where they've come from and, and what China as a nation has come from as well. You know, while there's that middle class emerging, it's really only started emerging in the last 15 years, if that you know, 20 years ago, there were no cars, it was all bikes. And suddenly, there are cars on the road, which is why their driving is kind of crazy. They're just all in and out weaving everywhere, the horns just constant, they don't use the indicator, but they've never had cars and suddenly everyone wants a car. So it's kind of like a, a, a baby learning to walk or and discovering all these new things. And I think that's what a lot of people in the West possibly don't understand because how would we if we've never been to China and we just see those daily headlines all the time that are always quite negative. So I think it was really interesting just to get to know the real people in China, the average people that are living in these second, third tier cities and how they feel about life. And, you know, only 10% currently have a passport. And you feel like they're traveling all the time, right? And that they're always here and everywhere. But you imagine when 20, 25% have a passport. So many of them have never really traveled and not even to many places within China. One of the things that was an eye-opener for me in terms of understanding culture was when you explained that it's almost rude to thank someone um, because that implies you're not close to them. And, you know, I've had that experience where someone like a, a child or whatever won't say thank you. And to us it seems rude, but to them it's actually more respectful not to say it. Yeah, I, I know, and I found that really difficult too because, you know, my, your instinct is to say, or oh, hi, how are you in Chinese? And um, But they don't do small talk. <laughs> and I, you know how Australia is famous for small talk, which shocked me coming back. But I remember after a while there, because we would get driven to school by a driver and they often don't speak English, but I, I just felt like I wanted to say, have a good weekend or how are you today or how was your weekend? And I asked Vera, my Chinese tutor, and she said, oh, no, we don't do that. It's just hello. 
you know, hello and goodbye, unless you're really close. And, you know, you don't say thank you um, or that means you're not you're not good friends. But I still, no matter how much they said that, I still made Ava say, you know, thank you, see you tomorrow every time we got out of the car. Because, again, as you say, you've got to bring her up the way that we think, you know, our children should be brought up. Mm, interesting. All right. Well, um, obviously so many memories from the time you were there. If you were to look back on that time, what's the most precious memory or perhaps a standout moment that you'll never forget? Oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, I think it's the people you meet. You know, from the locals, I, I think I wrote in the book how I met this World War II veteran who was 90-something years old. And he invited us into his home with his wife and they and they lived with their grandchildren. And it was just a really beautiful moment to be invited into a local's home and experience how they see life and view life. Um, and I did a lot of interviews like that, which were really special. Um, and I think the, the expat friends that we made, because they become your family when you've got no one there and you rely on each other, you know, from dawn till dusk. So, you know, those people that you become so close with, um, it's a friendship like no other. And, you know, I still miss them to this day. Um, so that, that was really special that, uh, you know, that that is a special thing that comes out of living abroad, I guess. You get to meet people from all over the place and you've got friends all over the world. Mm. Um, as a former newsreader, though, um, you are fond of your, your blow dryers, as you said in the book, and you, and you did find it very hard to find a hairdresser. Um, are you enjoying being back in Sydney where it's a bit easier to find a hairdresser? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's so much easier because I actually have a hairdresser right opposite my house. <laughs> so when we were buying this house, everyone was like, oh, my God, that's so typical. I'm like, I didn't know. But, yeah, it's pretty handy because, yeah, it was pretty crazy. Um, although I did become good friends with the hairdresser in Xi'an um, and, uh, you know, we, we kind of became like brother and sister as much as you can with someone who you can't really speak to, <laughs> you know, and even though the blow dries were a bit crazy, yeah. But it's <laughs> always fun trying out a hairdresser overseas. <laughs> Don't recommend it. <laughs> Well, um, welcome back and your hair's looking fabulous, Nicole. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your Chinese adventure with us this morning. Oh, thanks for having me, Katrina. It's been great. I've been speaking with former news presenter and author Nicole Webb. Her new book, China Blonde, is a funny memoir about adapting to culture shock in the heart of China. You can find out more at NicoleWebbOnline.com. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.